Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorley. Now, what are you doing on Saturday night? Uh, I don't know if you're free. Boris Johnson might invite you to dinner. He's organising a dinner at Chequers to mark 100 years of it being the official country retreat of Prime Ministers. But quite a lot of people aren't going. Tony Blair's not going. Gordon Brown's not going. Joel Major's not going. Uh, David Cameron's not going. In fact, it may well just be uh, Boris Johnson and Theresa May. And as we know, they get on like a house on fire. But uh, despite all of that, we are using the opportunity to uh, do the history of Chequers. Everything you needed to know about the Prime Minister's retreat, how it ended up being their uh, grace and favour home, uh, what it's like to stay there, what it's like to see a ghost there. And we speak to the DJ who got David Cameron raving when he organised a rave for Sam Camden. That's all that's coming up in our big thing just a moment. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel and it's Tuesday. So it must be Finkelvich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich, on Times Radio. <laughs> Never gets old, that. And, excitingly, Danny Finkelstein is in the studio. Hello, Matt. How are you? I am. I'm fine, thank you. Very and then much beaming in from his Cayman Islands retreats, David Ivanovich. Hi there. It's certainly exciting for Danny's family, I think, because he's out of their hair. For once. <laughs> <laughs> That's very unkind. On that, no, I think. Oh, there, yeah, there he is. Look, we can see David's there. Is that a new? Is that a new rug or or sofa in the background? No, that's just the shirt I'm wearing. It's a bright, bright red effect. Anyway, uh, let's focus on what we're here to talk about. Uh, get in touch as we go along. Eight seven two two side message with the word types. Um, let's uh, start first of all with um, government handling of the pandemic, Danny. And yeah. uh, we're about to. Later on, we're going to get the the details of the winter plan. And we do seem to be slightly back into the sort of government wobbles. Uh, we were going to have a vaccine passport. Then we were. Then we were following the science. Then it was on British. Is there, a, is there a slight sense of, of them not being completely consistent? Yeah, there's certainly a sense that we don't 
know exactly what the right what the next step is but that's been the case all the way through and I've always argued you know right the way through that that is understandable it's an understandable reaction and we always try to anticipate what's going to happen then we ask loads of questions uh, which is what you know we're all paid to do uh, the government tries to answer them which they try uh, but they don't yet know what the final answer is so then we end up getting uh, confusion personally I prefer the government to follow the scientific advice uh, I don't like it when it decides it's going to add in a lot of its own uh, opinions uh, because I think that the scientific advice is solid. But it has to be said that at the beginning of the pandemic, they did follow the scientific advice and I think mature reflection suggests that may not have been correct. And the government was then criticised for not having queried the scientific advice and added in what they want. We can't have it both ways. Uh, my own view was I was comfortable with that error when they, when they made it at the beginning because I thought it was made with the best scientific evidence and sometimes those things, because they're probabilistic, go wrong. Uh, I'd prefer it if they stuck with that approach, but you can't criticise them both for following the scientific advice and for not following it. <laughs> uh, David, it struck me, and it actually it struck me in the past couple of weeks, uh, even on the radio, speaking when we speak to scientists, every scientist who comes on has a slightly different idea about what we should and shouldn't be doing, um, which is a... It's a good reminder that that's basically what the Prime Minister and the government has had to face uh, for the last 18 months. I think this one was a, a bit different. And it's a bit different because of the way in which Sajid Javid uh, um, termed his uh, and the government's now opposition to the thing that they had been in favour of a couple of days earlier. Um, he didn't say, actually, or his main argument didn't seem to be that vaccine passports were no longer regarded as being necessary for the control of the pandemic because they looked at blah, 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 uh, all the statistics, etc. What he actually said was, well, I've never really liked the idea of being, in, essentially said, in a living kind of society where you have to show your papers to do everyday things. Now, to those of us who remember the old debate about uh, ID cards uh, and so on, which the Labour government of Blair and Brown were going to bring in and which the Conservative and Coalition government decided to uh, scrap, the schemers decided, decided to scrap it, that was always an argument that was made about ID cards. Um, ID cards were all very well for those continentals like the Germans who don't really understand things like totalitarianism, uh, etc. But for us, it's kind of un-British. You don't have to show anything to anybody to show whether you're an illegal immigrant or whether you've been vaccinated and so on. And so that was uh, Javid's argument. Now, quite apart from the fact there are loads of, loads of places where actually people are effectively required to show status of vaccination or testing. So there are actually vaccine passports, and God alone knows you need them in order to travel abroad, but you need them for lots of other places as well. This seemed to me to be a kind of peculiar thing to be saying. And if I were uh, Nadim Zahawi, the uh, vaccines minister, I wouldn't have been entirely delighted about it because when he came on the radio this morning, he was then having to try and cast his the government's decision entirely in terms of scientific necessity and, uh, and epidemi epidemiological consequence, etc. Uh, and I do think that Javid queered the pitch, which is odd, really, because the man's the health minister. <laughs> and it goes slightly against uh, Sajid Javid's brand, isn't he? He's supposed to be the slightly steadier, safe pair of... He's not the most exciting... Well, Minister of the I, World Day? I can't, I can't get myself excited about the thing that's exciting <laughs> David, actually. I, I, didn't, I, I just can't. I, I think it was perfectly reasonable to say that if we don't need to, when we go to a football match, show the person at the gate uh, that we've had a COVID, double COVID vaccination because it doesn't confer solid health benefits, uh, then we shouldn't do it. Um, because there's no, you know, because on 
balance, we don't really want to have to do that. And I, that's what he was saying. And that is definitely, by the way, part of... I mean, Sajid is a bit more libertarian probably than I am, but he, he uh, or a bit more attracted to that kind of rhetoric than I am. But I, but I didn't, I didn't find that, I didn't find that objectionable in the way that David did. I know, I know David's, you know, got a long-standing view that this kind of, you know, ideas anti-British is is um, bad, you know, sort of is a dead end of an argument. But I don't actually think that's really what was being said here. I think he was just saying, look, if we don't have to do this. I'm not in favour of doing it for the sake of it. And I think he's right about that. No, Danny, he wasn't, honestly, he wasn't saying that because nobody's actually saying, look, let's go and have uh, vaccine passports because we just love the idea. So that was never the argument. Nobody ever said, well, well, we quite like it. You know, I just wish, I just wish when I was going to a football match, they'd ask me for an extra piece of something so that I well, could no, get there is the, a, there's a logistic, there is, there is an argument that's, that basically, you know, you can't be too careful. Um, and it doesn't matter if people have to show these, uh, vac- these, these papers. And so therefore, uh, we, you know, we shouldn't worry about it. And what he's saying is, well, actually, it is a bit of a nuisance. And I don't, I don't want to live in a society in which we have to do that. So unless we absolutely have to, we're not going to. That There, there are definite dif- dif- differences of emphasis. Uh, but, uh, but I don't think it's an unreasonable difference. Is it, I mean, is it also a sort of a, a slight reflection of when they first started talking about these early in the year, there weren't that many people who had the vaccine. So being able to prove that you'd had a negative test or you'd had the vaccine, we, you know, was some benefit. But it does reach a point where uh, if most, far and away, the mo- most people have had the vaccine and uh, everyone has had the opportunity to get the vaccine, the cost-benefit analysis of big queues of people and all of that is, is you know, just to prove that, oh, the vast majority of people here have had the vaccine. Yeah, and we'll, go, we'll start going through the motions as well. So therefore, there'll be a sort of feeling that you are going to look at these uh, papers, but you're not actually going to look at them. Yeah, so yeah. it becomes a bit of a joke. So, uh, you know, I, I just didn't take a... I understand David's point, of course, as always, but I, I didn't just didn't didn't strike me in the same way. Okay, well, let's see if we can uh, um, uh, move on to another topic. Let's talk about Keir Starmer. He's been up this morning giving a virtual speech to the TUC. He's pointed out that last year he did it from his attic, and this time he's doing it from the podium, but still without an audience. Uh, and he's hoping that next year it might be in person. Uh, the Labour leader saying he's he would increase. <laughs> next year he'll be in a podium in the attic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, when nobody's told him he's not Labour leader anymore, he's just still carrying on. Um, uh, he's vowed to increase sick pay as part of a package to boost workers' rights. Uh, he would increase the minimum wage to at least £10 an hour, he says. Um, uh, and he wants to increase uh, baker's rights, uh, basic rights uh, for workers from day one in the job. So you get holiday pay, protection, unfair dismissal and guaranteed sick pay. Uh, so this is at least some policy uh, from uh, Keir Starmer of the Labour Party. Is it the sort of big idea which is going to electrify the nation in a way that he is, hasn't managed yet, David? Well, there, there is a big difficulty about this. I mean, we've, we've just had the government last week uh, announcements um, insofar as you can totally understand them about social care and what the consequence is going to be. And that was, a, that was by whichever way you looked at it, a very big deal indeed. Um, and what this can tend to look like by way of comparison is a series of kind of nice sort of shop, uh, shopping, essentially a kind of shopping list of possibilities, all of which in themselves might seem desirable, but which don't necessarily of themselves add up to some kind of great big picture about how you see society developing. And the reason why I thought it was interesting, because I wanted, and I wanted Danny's view on this, is that 
at this point out from a possible general election, the question of the utility of having the shopping list as opposed to the big vision strikes me as problematic. And it may be even be problematic to have the very big vision about social care when by the time you get to an election, you're going to have a contingent reality to deal with and you're going to have to suggest what should be done under those circumstances. And it always strikes me that at this kind of moment, the opposition is on a hiding to nothing if it kind of creates too much and so on. But on the other hand, is always open to the accusation that it's entirely negative if it doesn't have something to say. So uh, it may well be that these are proposals which I've not seen kind of fit that middle, uh, that middle distance. And then there's the final thing, which I know that Dan is written about, which is just simply whether or not the personality of the leader and the leadership has the capacity to convey the idea, even possibly without the substance, that you intend big things for the country. I'm totally against the leader of the opposition enumerating detailed policy at this point in the parliament. And and by the way, this is said in sympathy with Keir Starmer, not against him. He's being urged by everybody to do it. It's extremely hard for him to resist it. And it's extremely hard for him to resist the idea that he has nothing to say if he doesn't give some concrete examples. But as far as possible, if it can be resisted, it's not good policy making and it doesn't help... Uh, electorally either it doesn't do either of the things that you want it to do he's not in a position to make policy not just because of the distance that he is from an election but having been the head of an opposition policy unit we you know probably the government had more people working on carpet regulation than we had working on every item of policy you just don't have the capacity to do it you're too far from election the conservative party went into the election with after all with a tax guarantee which was foolish um and even that which was delivered in the month of the election turned out to be too early um so these kind of commitments are not a very good idea you do want to set out what you broadly stand for i'd quite like to know whether keir starmer was left wing or right wing within the context of the labor party that'd be a useful thing to know uh, i'd really broadly like him to know whether he thinks um large-scale deficit financing is a good idea or a bad idea what his view is about taxing income versus unearned wealth um you know what whether he believes uh, the iraq war was or wasn't a good idea whether he would anticipate doing the same thing again those big things that would i'd learn something from that but him saying what his policy is going to be towards them um towards uh, you know social care payment in six years time uh, you know in the assumption that he was prime minister is 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 sort of irresponsible for us to urge him to do that and he shouldn't give in to it but isn't, isn't what actually what we're getting as i was just laying out you know what keir starmer is uh, announcing today is what instead of not doing the big stuff they do lots of dull small stuff so yesterday we had um uh um, angela rayner doing calling for mandatory covid checks in venues um i remember writing about uh, annalise dodds gave a big speech to shadow chancellor uh, calling for transparency in the waiving of the social value requirement in public contracts and wanted a national set of good work standards. Well, if you're going to do all that and you're going to set out what the minimum wage should be and, uh, you know, employment rights durations and all of that, you're inviting people to say, well, fine, if you're doing that, come up with a big idea that yeah. anyone's going to take to, any notes of. To be fair to them, some of it is... Re- is- parliamentary so there's a lot of detail in parliament they have to oppose the bills they have to amend the bills with different detailed amendment that requires them sometimes to make detailed judgments about you know to take a position so to be fair and secondly they're under a lot of pressures to do it Uh, but they shouldn't think that that 
and I'm sure probably probably don't, but they shouldn't think by giving in to that desire, they're really explaining to anyone what they stand for. And by the way, this is not a point about Labour and Conservative. The Conservatives did this exactly the same thing, and it's really from the Conservative experience that I'm talking. So this is not a specific thing about Keir Starmer. This is about oppositions. Uh, and it's quite, I mean, he's got a particularly tricky uh, opponent, hasn't he, Keir Starmer? Um, in, in the, Boris Johnson has got in a situation where he's got the Labour Party to come out against a tax rise for the NHS, David. In a way that, and I, um, uh, I think Danny wrote about this the other day when advising William Hague, uh, the Tories would sit around and say, well, there's no way Tony Blair could do this. And he kept on doing it. And in the same way, the, the Labour Party, there's no way that Boris Johnson is going to outflank us again on the left. I well remember going on a programme um, uh, when Tony Blair was opposition leader <laughs> and this, uh, with a Conservative commentator who was considerably more Conservative uh, than Danny uh, in many ways. And he was talking about all the ways in which Blair would be condemned by Labour's past and so on. And I said, and the metaphor that, suddenly, that occurred to me was that Tony Blair was like uh, uh, William Sherman um, marching to the sea uh, through Georgia, which was everybody said he couldn't do it because he had no supply lines. It was impossible and you couldn't kind of outrun them. But Sherman just went, uh, left everything behind, uh, just went and lift off the land all the way to Savannah. And that essentially is what Blair and to a certain extent Johnson did in terms of the expectations upon them ideologically, which is if they're not convenient, they, they ditch them. And off they go. And that makes opposition incredibly difficult because you can't necessarily anticipate where your uh, opponent is going to end up. Now, Tories can look at the Labour Party and think, well, with a significant left in the Labour Party, it's always going to be difficult for them to kind of sh um, uh, shove off these particular aspects of their history. And they may or may not be right about this. But the thing about Johnson is that he literally doesn't seem to care whether he uh, offends. Well, it's not so much whether he offends. It, uh, who he offends actually is quite important, but from day to day, which is why Dominic Cummings said this thing about him. He said, with the Boris Johnson, Johnson administration, everything is reversible. And then he said, and everything will be reversed. So um, we had the reversal, we had an apparent reversal on the planning uh, uh, yeah. uh, liberalisation, for example, just like that. And nobody said anything <laughs> at all. It just happened. But they haven't so actually all the things that they was going to yeah, do yeah, yeah, have yeah. now been... Abandoned. Well, I suppose, and ultimately, what what will uh, be the big test of Boris Johnson? He's very good at making these announcements and then elegantly reversing them. But can he deliver something by the time of the uh, the next election? Uh, now, as I mentioned uh, later on, we're going to be talking about checkers because it's a hundred years since the prime minister took over checkers, or the checkers became a gift, was a gift to the nation for the prime minister to uh, relax at. Uh, David, have you ever been? I have. I have, yeah, actually. I went you? twice. Oh, Yeah, I went once for one of those evenings there where Sherry Blair showed us around um, uh, uh, and told us the history of the house. But my most, but my biggest memory is that when we came in, it was a kind of thing, a cold evening. And there was a fire in the grate, etc. And little Leo was watching the television. And I remember the light of the fire shining through his rather big ears um, <laughs> as he sat there in his pyjamas. And I thought... This is kind of rather a nice and cute uh, scene. And then another occasion I went there to talk to Blair about a TV series that I was doing about the Blair years just before uh, he left power. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, it's it's quite fun going to Checkers, I think. Um, well, I was reading, uh, flicking through Blair's memoirs uh, last night in preparation for it. He did, he did seem to really like Checkers. He 
He, you know, at times of crisis, I think after 9-11, when he was mulling whether or not he was going to stand down, that was where we went and he'd sit on the terrace with a glass of wine and strum his guitar and that's where he made his big decisions. What about, <laughs> what, what about you, Danny? Yeah, so several times. Um, and, um, uh, you know, a number of different things which show all the different uses of checkers for dinner, for, for dinners, for some lunches, uh, but a lot also for um, meetings of ministers and... Um, sort of policy discussions which were a bit looser and they were better for there. So John Major had a series where he which I was at, which where he brought in first cabinet ministers and then junior ministers in different tranches to discuss what ought to be uh in a manifesto. And I think he that was a nice atmosphere for him to do it. So I don't know any Prime Minister who hasn't really enjoyed checkers. Uh and it's um it, it I think it does do what you know the founders who gave it to the nation hoped that it would do. It certainly did it for for Churchill and for all the prime ministers that I've uh, encountered or worked with. It was funny reading some of the history of it. it was, part of the reason for doing it was because the uh, an awareness of the possibility in the future that not every prime minister would have their own country home. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I did get a one chance where uh, my, where David Cameron took my sons into the swimming pool that was given to the nation by Richard Nixon's ambassador. Uh, and uh, later I took him to a football dinner uh, and he said to me, this is the greatest evening. Uh, and I said, I said, but surely you enjoyed like swimming in the, in the Prime Minister's pool. He said, yes, but Petr Cech wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> and I think that does probably put it into uh, as, as exciting as it is. Well, lovely. Well, we will find out. Nobody's yet suggested they'd like Finkel as their dream uh, fantasy dinner party guest. But I'm sure that's only a matter of time. Well, so D- Danny's coming. David, could we, maybe we could tempt you in one week. Do you think... Uh, you... Tempt, you, tempt me in what? The no, pool, not into the swimming pool. No, into the studio. To get no, you no, no, into... I'm, I'm, I've got my podium in my attic. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. I would love. I would. I would love to be there. Um. Uh. But can you fit the three? All three of us. I think we can now. I think we can now. As long as we. As long as we get jet washed down afterwards, it's totally fine. Okay, it's a deal. Danny Finkelstein and David Wadovich there, of course. You can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, the secret history of checkers. 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, what are you doing Saturday night? Yes, Boris Johnson's having his friends round for dinner this weekend for the ultimate uh, dinner party at Chequers. But what do Ed Balls, Bruce Forsyth, Bill Bryson, Jimmy Carr, Kate Garraway, Lorraine Kelly, Matt Lucas, Davina McCall, John Motson, John Sentamu, Emma Thompson, Jeremy Paxman, Elena Bonham Carter, Harry Enfield, Bobby Charlton and Claudia Schiffer all have in common? Well, they have all been guests at Chequers, the Prime Minister's uh, country retreat set in a thousand acres of beautiful grounds in Buckinghamshire. It was given to the nation by Sir Arthur Lee and Lloyd George became the first Prime Minister to take up residence there in 1921, exactly 100 years ago. Well, in a moment, we'll find out more about the history. We'll speak to some of the people who've been there. But Boris Johnson's due to host a dinner party uh, there to mark the centenary this weekend. But it's hit a few bumps in the road. Henry Zeffman, Times Chief Political Correspondent, is here with more. Uh, so, Henry, explain uh, about the dinner. Um, who is Who was supposed to be going and who's actually going? So some weeks ago, um, the trustees of Chequers, who, who run the estate, uh, sent out invitations to every living prime minister. So, of course, that's... Uh, not just Boris Johnson, but Theresa May, David Cameron, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair and Sir John Major. And I got wind uh, towards the back end of last week that uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown uh, had said they couldn't make it. It said there was an unfortunate diary clash, which made this, uh, you know, sounded to me like the most awkward family reunion in history. You know, just the Conservative Party prime ministers, you know, almost all of whom, you know, any, you choose any two-way relationship among that four and there's bad blood there. Um, but as I've reported in the time today, uh, it's even more uncomfortable than that. Uh, David Cameron and John Major, in fact, can't make it either. So of the former prime ministers, it'll be Theresa May, and Boris Johnson, two people who you don't need to know a lot about recent political history to know, uh, do not exactly see eye to eye uh, on a fair number of issues. Presumably, it's not going to be just them. Uh, are, the, are we expecting other, or is it like the t- sort of a scene from, you know, sitting at either end of a very long dining room table? No, there will be other people who've been involved in, in checkers over the years there. And John Major's wife, uh, Dame Norma Major, will be attending. She actually wrote a history of checkers. Uh, in 1996, uh, while her husband uh, was still prime minister. Um, so, you know, I don't think it is the case that Boris Johnson and Theresa May will be sitting you know, across from each other at a small table reminiscing about the last time they were at Chequers together, which was the uh, 2018 Chequers summit where the cabinet agreed to Theresa May's Brexit deal. And then the next day, Boris Johnson quit as her foreign secretary. Um, it would be a little bit awkward uh, if that was um, the only topic of conversation uh, for the guests there. Um, so there will be others. Um, uh, you know, personally, by the way, I think it reflects very well on Theresa May that she is going. I think she she is the she is the person here who seems to be recognising that actually, uh, you know, this 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 residence, this estate, does hold a big place in British political history, and that you know the the office is bigger than its occupants. Um, although, you know, the other prime ministers absolutely say stress they are not snubbing the occasion; uh, they simply have diary clashes. But it does seem to me like it might have been. Uh, or ought to have been a rather important uh, fixture in, in their diaries. Thanks so much. That's Henry Zeppelin, Chief Political Correspondent for The Times. Well, as you were saying, there is a lot of history in the building. It was from Chequers that Winston Churchill recorded many of his famous wartime addresses to the nation. 
Margaret Thatcher hosted American President Ronald Reagan, Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev there. Tony Blair welcomed the US President Bill Clinton. Uh, he also hosted Sinn Féin's Martin McGuinness. Uh, but of course, the history goes back even further than that. So let's let's dive into the history books. Martin Farr is a historian from Newcastle University uh, and knows a lot about uh, Czechos. Joins me now. Hi, Martin. Hello, Matt. Uh, so whose house was it before it became the Prime Minister's rural hangout? Well, it was built in the 16th century. Uh, it's a great one, building um, in the Buckinghamshire Hills, the Chilterns. And it was acquired by um, Arthur Lee, who was a Conservative MP during the First World War, who, um, and this is where it's interesting, and this is in many ways the historical sort of link with Johnson. I've always thought Johnson has much more in common with this Prime Minister than the one he likes to compare himself with. Lloyd George comes into the picture, uh, who was not averse to um, trading favours and trading honours. And uh, he made... Uh, Lee a Viscount and Lee gave checkers to the country and it's been there was an act of parliament in 1917 which conferred this but since 21 so it's 100 years this is the reason for the dinner um, it's been the country residence of the prime minister and lots of things have happened there but nothing as funny as the dinner we're about to witness. And um, so why did it then become sort of a, a gift to uh, the nation and describe if, if you've got it in front of you the the the, the, the slogan or the legend in the stained glass window? Oh, I haven't got that in front of me, I'm afraid. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the I, 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 I can do that bit. I can do that bit. <laughs> well, you, you go with the, the, the slogan and I'll come in with the, uh, the context. Yeah, so the slogan says, this house of peace and quiet, uh, the peace and age, ancient memories was given to England as a thank offering for a deliverance in the Great War, War of 1914 to 1918 as a place of rest and recreation for our prime ministers forever. Yes, and so the war is a very important uh, dimension to this because um, in many respects British government becomes modernised by the First World War. The year before Chequers is conferred to the state, we have the cabinet secretary and we have cabinet minutes and Lloyd George modernises central government. And the following year we have this, which is the, the most obvious and the most significant perk of being a prime minister. And the reason being, I think also the context of the chaos of the war and the, the fact that in 1917 it was by no means guaranteed that Britain would be on the winning side, was that the prime minister required somewhere to reflect somewhere of peace and solitude um, with the, the high and pure air of the Chilton Hills, as Viscount Lee called it. So that was an important way of having the Prime Minister having a kind of bolt hole away from the um, fetid atmosphere of Westminster in wartime or peacetime. And that's been the attraction ever since. And every Prime Minister I know has always regarded it as something that was very dear to them and was an important part of them being able to function as Prime Minister. Yeah, and in fact, as we saw you know, early last year, um, uh, Boris Johnson you know, chose that was where he went to recuperate after he was in intensive care with COVID. So even even the current Prime Minister um, you know, knows knows the value of having somewhere to retreat from, from Downing Street. Uh, Martin Farr, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Historian from Newcastle uh, University giving us the history of the building. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Yeah, good morning. It's Matt Chorley with you. Uh, we are talking about Chequers, uh, where the Prime Minister, uh, this Prime Minister's country retreat it has been for exactly 100 years. Boris Johnson hosting a dinner uh, to uh, mark the centenary uh, this Saturday, although uh, I think it's only Theresa May is among his predecessors who is attending. As Henry Zeffman explained to us uh, a, a moment ago, um, Chequers as a place became sort of synonymous for, for in fact, a very stressful uh, situation. Uh, which was uh, Theresa May's uh, Brexit deal. It became known as the Trekkers deal because it's the one she thrashed out uh, with her ministers in, on a July weekend in 2018. 
Um, it didn't go brilliantly well. Ahead of the summit in July, uh, uh, that uh, hot uh, summer's day, an ally of Theresa May uh, joked that taxi cards for Aston's Taxis, the local CAD firm, would be in the foyer for those who design they can't fake, face making the right decision for the country. Although the threat backfired and David Davis quit the day after and Boris Johnson followed 24 hours later. David Liddington was Theresa May's uh, de facto uh, Deputy Prime Minister, was there and uh, joins me now. Hi, David. Hi, hi, Matt. Good to speak to you. Uh, nice to have you with us. So, uh, first of all, I suppose, why why were the talks at Chequers? Was it just the case that um, the stalemate, uh, all the conversations in Downing Street were so bad? Was it, well, let's just try changing the venue. Well, uh, actually, that, that, that is part of it. And it's not, it was more a joke because um, if you have um, a long meeting of, of the kind that this was going to have to be in London, then ministers attending are going to have messages passed to them from their departments. The civil service feel that ministers are easy to get at. You go out to checkers, it's a change of scene. There are lots of different rooms. There's a, a, a garden where people can get some fresh air and also means the space for those private conversations. If somebody's unhappy about some, some aspect of what's being discussed, um, the prime minister or whoever's they're leading the, the, the talks, can take them off into a corner, try and sort out you know, whether they can reassure that particular colleague or, or perhaps it'll be a visiting leader from some other country. So Chequers is attractive. The other thing about Chequers is that even in the 21st century digital age, it has the most useless mobile phone communications. <laughs> so actually one of the stories that got into all the papers about um, the, that checkers meeting under Teresa was that we all had to hand in our mobile phones when we, when we went in, which is true, as you do before a cabinet meeting at number 10. And the, the irony of it is that even if you had your mobile phone with you, you couldn't get a signal. Um, you know, I, I live about three miles away from, from Chequers. I used to represent the, 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 the area of the state in Parliament. And um, you know, in the Chilton Hills, you go into certain valleys and the signal just cuts out completely. That's true of Chequers. I think successive prime ministers have been a mix of frustrated, but also relieved sometimes <laughs> that they can't be got hold of so quickly. And what is it like as a place? Talk, talk for people who haven't been or haven't seen the, the pictures. Yeah, just just, just I mean, describe it. It's it, it, it's not a it's not a stately home. It's not on the scale of your know, your Longleats or your 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 Wobans. It's a manor house. It's a peasant manor house um, in park a farmland really, with with some sort of trees laid out, sort of park style, um, in the valley of the Chilterns, um, with some uh, hills, including Coombe Hill, one of the highest points on in the Chiltern Hills, very close to from which you get good views of the surrounding landscape. Um, it, it, ironically, there's a, a footpath, public footpath actually crosses the grounds of Chequers. And I remember sort of explaining this to American and other foreign visitors, and they looked at it with absolute horror. So how earth is this permitted? And I tried to explain that if you try to close the public footpath through the Chequers estate, that you'd have to apply to Buckinghamshire County Council to uh, <laughs> change their definitive list of footpaths and there'd be objections. So there'd be a public inquiry into that. And they just shook their heads in dis disbelief. You know, this is this is the mad, um, the mad British. Um, but you can go you can go for a very pleasant country walk on public footpaths, but and they go through the checkers grounds, but don't 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 step off the public footpath. <laughs> the security the security is rightly sadly these days, very, very tight and sort of 
athletic, burly men in you know, balaclavas and jumpsuits will probably come <laughs> running at you very fast. And that's all changed, I suppose, since the Brighton bomb. Was, yes, was yeah, 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 securities. Um, and I suppose also you know, when, it, do, it does save the Prime Minister getting too much grief from passers-by who might want to share their thoughts on what they were up to. So, uh, st- yes. Yeah, look, Boris did get get um, collared when he was I think he was pushing you know, Wilfred, uh, their the, the son, for uh, to the in his in his um, uh, buggy and uh, near the footpath. And there was a a charity fun run that that was coming past. There's various people taking selfies of themselves. Prime <laughs> <laughs> Minister, <laughs> all in good spirit. Of course, of course. David Lewington, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Sir David Lewington there uh, giving us his reflections on Chequers, where, to, of course, Theresa May had her Brexit. I think I think the place might now have shaken off the association with uh, with Brexit. Uh, I think we've got um, Sir Nicholas Soames uh, back with us. Uh, are you there, Nicholas? Yes, I am. Sorry, apologies about that. That's the, the, peril, the perils of, of technology. You were explaining going to Chequers, of course, your grandfather was Winston Churchill. You, met, you, you went there when he was Prime Minister. Well, we did. And as a family, we spent the Christmases, or I think 53 and 54, 54 and 55. I think it was 53 and 54. We spent Christmas there as a, as a family. It's, it's a most wonderful heist. And I realise the reptilian glee on all your parts at the... Um, at the, the sort of jokey side of this, but it was the most astonishingly generous gift to the nation for whatever reason by Lord Leo Farum. It has provided comfort and solace and a place to escape from a very, very frantic events and for prime ministers and their families to recuperate. And it has seen, as you make the point, some of the most important uh, chapters in the history of Britain. And so, quite a lot of that, of course, was written during the Second World War, when my grandfather went to Chartwell, uh, went to uh, Chequers, uh, literally every weekend, except incidentally when the moon was high, um, when British intelligence discovered that the Germans were going to try and bomb Chequers. So he went, and on the weekends of the full moon, he used to go and stay at a most wonderful house, not that far away, called Ditchley. But otherwise, he loved being at Chequers. It did provide him with a great haven. I learned to ride my bicycle there. I remember there was this beautiful <laughs> bike, and I was told that if you can stay on it going down this slope and get to the other side of the lawn, it, you can have it. And I did it. So I was rather it has a it has a particularly important meaning. <laughs> to me. And you're right that when you sort of look look at um, everything that's happened over the years, the people who've walked up that slope, or or possibly even ridden their bikes, um, it's it's such an important part in our history. Whether you know, at times of crisis, it was world leaders meeting their their counterparts, or, or even yes. even your your grandfather Winston Churchill recording many of his radio addresses there. Why do you think he chose well, to do them there rather than it? In Downing Street, I, I don't know that you're right about that. Oh, I, I don't. I, I don't know that that is the case. Um, he may well have done, but I, not. I, it's not that I know of. It is not sort of thought to be a sort of major piece of historical fact. I really don't think that's correct, but it may be. But in which case, what, what, actually, quite a lot more, of the things that more, I was looking up with checkers, which which had been reported. Yeah. Turns right. out it's quite difficult to, to confirm that whether those things are really the case. So this might yes, be another one of those things. It, entered, I mean, you know, me. it easily could have done. That. Yes, it, yeah, yeah. it easily could have done. But I don't rec- recall it ever being spoken of. But, um, I mean, you are absolutely right. Some of the most secret and important meetings of the entire war took place at Chequers. Um, I think Lady Thatcher's meeting with President Gorbachev, uh, earlier meetings with President Reagan. I mean, all the prime ministers. Um, have used it for precisely what it was intended for, and have derived great pleasure from it, and 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 comfort, and and I think in the ability to perhaps spend some time 
with their families without being jeered at. So I think it's um, I think it's a, a wonderful I think it's a wonderful benefaction, um, and I think all the primes. I think it's a great pity that um, so few people appear to be going. But any dinner party that has Dame Norma Major in it is one that I would very much like to be asked. <laughs> yeah, in fact, we tried to, we tried to get her on because her her book, her history she's, of checkers, she's much is... too modest. Exactly, and it is it is the most <laughs> wonderful book. Her book on checkers, absolutely wonderful. Nicholas, so Nicholas Holmes, thanks very much for joining us on Time Thank Radio. You. There, uh, former Conservative MP, of course, and uh, grandson of Winston Churchill, learnt to ride his bike at Checkers. Well, there we are. Uh, but like I was saying, so many people have walked up and down the, the paths of, of uh, Checkers. In 1970, the Queen made her, her first ever trip to Checkers to meet Richard Nixon during her his first state visit to Britain. The United uh, States President was hosted by Ted Heath, and he told the newly elected President, the Prime Minister, uh, that he wanted to establish a close personal communication. Well, Richard Nixon received such a warm welcome during that trip that the US Ambassador uh, paid for a swimming pool to be installed at Chequers as a thank you. When Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, she was apparently so worried about the running costs, she had the pool's heating switched off. And then in a speech in 2012, David Cameron uh, revealed uh, just this. Edward Heath and Richard Nixon took personal awkwardness with each other to new and excruciating levels. And yet despite this, Richard Nixon arranged for someone to pay for the swimming pool at the Prime Minister's country residence of Chequers. Incidentally, this swimming pool now has a serious and possibly terminal leak. <laughs> and we all know you don't want leaks uh, from Chequers, which is very much what um, uh, successive prime ministers have tried to avoid when they've been there to have meetings. Uh, but in 2017, Theresa May summoned her key advisers to Chequers. Uh, she served them uh, to discuss having a, uh, a snap general election. She apparently served them chicken lasagna and boiled potatoes. Uh, <laughs> mm, delicious. Um, uh, she wasn't the only one to call uh, to take the decision to uh, hold a snap election. There, Howard Wilson did the same thing. He took his cabinet there in 1970 to sign off a snap election. He then lost, which is why it was Ted Heath who ended up uh, hosting uh, Nixon. Uh, food and drink is particularly important. Margaret Thatcher said, I assure you, told the Commons once that the whiskey served at Chequers and at number 10 is genuine Scotch whiskey, and it was very good. And there's lots of talk of parties. Uh, parties are very popular. Gus O'Donnell, the former cabinet secretary, once described how on becoming prime minister, one of his first decisions for uh, John Major was to decide what to do at Chequers. How do you want to use Chequers? Not just your Downing Street home, yeah. but this other place. It's a great place for bonding. You might want to bring some people together. You've got some thank yous to do, you know, receptions. I remember one of my joys when John Major became Prime Minister and I was just his press secretary is I went in to see, talk to him about some press issues and he had a piece of paper in front of him and said well Margaret Thatcher was due to have a reception and you know uh, they've now given it to me because the dates are in the diary but we haven't got a guest list so I said well Bobby Charlton <laughs> and then we just reeled out these people that we'd all love to meet and there That's they amazing. were and they so who else was there? Up. Bobby Charlton Bobby Charlton we had um, Jenny Agata I remember um, a whole bunch of cricketers I mean, it was just, you know, people you'd like to meet. Yeah, people you'd like to meet, including, and successful prime ministers have done this, that great big long list I mentioned at the start. Uh, but David Cameron in 2014 used Chequers to stage a rave for a belated 40th birthday for his wife, Samantha. Guests included Harry Enfield, actress Helena Bottom Carter, Jeremy Clarkson was there as well, uh, all treated the spectacle of David Cameron throwing shapes on the dance floor. Uh, to music being played by the DJ Sarah HB. Here apparently is a song that David Cameron was getting down to.
And one person who knows what David Cameron used to like to get up to it, Checkers, is his former press secretary, Gabby Burton, who joins me now. Hi, Gabby. Hi, Matt. Does this song bring back memories? Were you there? I was there. Do you know what? This song doesn't bring back memories, but I do remember thinking that we could have had a bit more cheese on that night, for sure. But um, Oh, was it a bit too no, cool? I have to say, I could have listened to Sir Nicholas Soames talking about his experience of Checkers all day. I mean, the, the history of that place is what really hits you when you go there. Um, and, you know, the long room that we've spoken about. I mean, the, the the things that you will never be able to see in any museum. So, for example, the ring that Anne Boleyn used to wear, um, the swords from um, Cromwell's time, the sort of biggest collection of Cromwell memorabilia sits in Checkers. Um, the art that apparently, I mean, again, maybe Sir Nicholas has a view on this, but, uh, but Winston Churchill apparently used to make the art much better and would draw things into, into these very, very um, beautiful paintings like little mice and all the rest of it. So um, there are some, some great, great um, things to sort of look around and it's, it was always a huge honour. And I think I have to say that um, it's only former prime ministers that would refuse a, a, an invite to check if you can literally <laughs> anyone and, and nearly everyone will say yes, because it is just such a special thing. You mentioned, in fact, um, uh, Miranda messaging because she's, she said we hadn't uh, yet mentioned the collection of uh, um, Cromwell memorabilia uh, and so on. And actually, when I was reading around it, there was there was quite a lot of... Um, Times when at various times people have shown some sort of Cromwell memorabilia to people. I'm not sure if it was. I think it was. Might have been, was it Sarah Brown? I think wrote about how she once um, was showing off the Cromwell memorabilia, and she realised the person she was showing off to was Prince Andrew. And the royals might not be massive fans <laughs> of uh, looking at Cromwell memorabilia. And I think um, uh, uh, Tony Blair did a similar thing. Was was showing it off to Martin McGuinness, which again, the politics of all of that is. Uh, um, is interesting, and um, but because the, the, the history goes back so far, there's a secret spiral staircase up to the prison room where Lady yeah. Mary Grey was held for two years on the order of Elizabeth that's, the First. Quite a spooky thing happened to well, me. That's what Checkers. I wanted to ask you about. Tell me about your ghost story yeah. at Checkers. Um, so I was heavily pregnant, and um, I, I did used to organise a bit like um, Gus O'Donnell I, I, as press secretary. I, I was tasked with organising various sort of dinners and 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 you know soft power sort of uh, gatherings, um, and um, and I was just too sort of pregnant to drive home after after one of these. It was too late. So anyway, I was given um, the lovely room, lovely cord room, the prison room, and I thought, my God, you know this this doesn't sound great. But anyway, you go up there. Of course, it's not a sort of prison room like you would expect it these days. It's a beautiful suite of apartments. I mean, not probably that beautiful if you had to stay there for two years, which, as I understand, you did have to. But anyway, so um, I, I went to bed and, and, and had a lovely night's sleep. There was nothing creepy about the room at all. It, was, it felt you know, lovely and warm. But I woke up um, and the door had been bolted from the inside. The two massive great big bolts, on one on the top, one on the bottom, had been bolted. And I just would never, ever have done that. <laughs> wow. That's... Yeah. So who do you think I was that all, was? I mean, terrible. A fire. I never wanted to be sort of locked in a room, yeah, especially yeah. now. And not least, you have the police sort of sleeping down the corridor. So it's not a room that you're really scared for your security. Um, so, yeah, I was pretty freaked out by that. I didn't stay again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good story, though. It's a good story, though. Uh, Gabby Burton, thanks very much for sharing your uh, 
the spooky goings-on at Chequers. And as we've heard, I mean, so many Prime Ministers have, have found uh, solace, though, over the years, uh, ever since David uh, Lloyd George became the first Prime Minister uh, to um, stay there as it, after it was gifted to the nation uh, back in uh, 1921. In 1923, Stanley Baldwin made a decision to stay on uh, as PM despite losing his majority during a stay at Chequers. In 1939, Neville Chamberlain, found himself on the verge of a nervous breakdown while walking in the grounds. Apparently, he often used to retreat to tend the roses in the garden. Winston Churchill, we heard a lot about there from Nicholas Soames. Uh, he apparently sacked the cook for not making the soup properly and uh, once turned the long gallery into a cinema to, to uh, watch uh, films there. Clement Attlee apparently hosted children's parties there. Margaret Thatcher once wrote, I do not think anyone has stayed long at Chequers without falling in love with it. Uh, she used to spend her Christmases there, although uh, famously quite often with Jimmy Savile, which we perhaps won't dwell on uh, now. J uh, James Callaghan used to also spend Christmas there, uh, as did Tony Blair. Uh, Tony Blair uh, famously um, met uh, Diana, Princess of Wales, there about a month before her death. Uh, they walked in the grounds uh, while discussing a relationship with Dodie Fyde before uh, Tony Blair joined Prince William for a football match on the lawn, maybe right next to the path where... Uh, um, um, uh, Nicholas Soames learned how to ride his bike. Uh, and it was in that summer, uh, in those uh, hot summers, that Tony Blair would sit in the grounds with a glass of wine, strumming his guitar and mulling over uh, what to do, whether it was uh, uh, the, the fallout of 9-11, the invasion of Iraq, and then making the decision on uh, when to uh, resign. These days, um, apparently Boris Johnson struggles to relax there because uh, there have been reports that Dylan the dog keeps chewing the furniture and soiling the carpets, which I suppose will at least give them something to talk about over dinner on Saturday night. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.